So, I hope you're doing okay after this first day of retreat. Is everything okay so far? Or more or less? <laughs> okay? Good. So, tonight I would like to talk about mindfulness. A precious jewel in our mind and I would be really curious to know what the reactions in your minds are. Maybe you think, oh, I've already read so much, I've heard so much about mindfulness. So actually that's an interesting fact that mindfulness that is truly a central quality on this path, in this practice, can sometimes appear as something that is not very spectacular or um, fascinating, but it can almost seem somewhat ordinary. We just take it for granted. We've heard the instructions on how to practice it, and those instructions sound deceptively simple. Sit and know you're sitting. Notice the sensations in your body. Feel them. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? And yet, when we actually practice mindfulness over a certain period, we start to sense the depth of this quality. We start to feel that there is something essential about it, so profound that doesn't really seem to be captured in the word mindfulness. And even more so nowadays as we witness the mainstreaming of mindfulness and its applications in so many different contexts, in business, in therapy, in schools, in prisons even. And being involved myself in this field of mindfulness-based interventions, I cannot help feeling sometimes that there is something essential missing when I read or listen to people who seem to reduce mindfulness just to some kind of attention regulation capacity or just a possibility to find some calm and peace inwardly. But really, there, there is more to mindfulness. And probably, you know, to explore what it really means and what the potential of mindfulness is, takes years and I'm not claiming that personally I have reached any final understanding because somehow in our practice maybe you also experience this. Um, somehow the explorations just keep going on and on and our understanding is just becoming more and more refined as we continue and deepen our practice. Many years ago, on a three-month retreat, I was really grappling with this question. What is mindfulness, really? What does it mean to be aware? You know, this capacity that we have to be present in this moment, to be aware, to be conscious, to know what is happening, that somehow struck me suddenly, and I started to ask questions. And I went into the interview with Guy Armstrong and told him, you know, I'm trying to understand what mindfulness actually is. What, what is it really? And he laughed and said with some understatement, 
Well, that is something that I have been trying to find out for more than 25 years. So what I'd like to talk about tonight is what or how we can understand mindfulness if we look at the discourses in the Pali Canon. So in those very traditional discourses that have been handed down. Understanding more clearly the functions of mindfulness in the context of a spiritual path, a path of awakening, will help us to recognize the depth and the transformative power of mindfulness, far beyond calm and stress reduction. In this context, mindfulness cannot just be reduced to some technique, it cannot be separated from a broader and more holistic vision of human potential. Um, it cannot be separated from a broader understanding of how our minds work. And different from some modern ways of using mindfulness, where it sometimes almost seems like a fix for all kinds of problems, or like a thing that you either have or you, or you don't have it. In the Buddhist tradition, mindfulness or sati is always seen as a mental factor that closely collaborates with other mental factors such as wisdom or energy. But the Buddha was very clear that among those mental factors, mindfulness is one of the main key factors that needs to be developed. For instance, in the Dhammapada, an ancient Buddhist text, it says, the foolish and the ignorant give themselves over to negligence, whereas the wise treasure mindfulness as a precious jewel. Therefore, one should not be negligent, nor be addicted to sensual pleasures, for he or she who is established in mindfulness through cultivation of tranquility and insight development practice experiences supreme happiness. Mindfulness also appears in many, many lists of important factors in the teachings. Maybe you know that the Dharma is full of lists in the Pali Canon, you find all kinds of listings. And so um, their mindfulness is mentioned very often. For instance, mindfulness is one of the five spiritual faculties, which are faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. So right now I'm aware of a mosquito. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> And all of those qualities need to be strengthened, developed, and brought into a balance. Mindfulness is also the first of seven factors of awakening. So we have mindfulness, we have the investigation, energy, rapture, calm, concentration, and equanimity. And being the first in this whole row, Mindfulness is what gives rise to all the other factors of awakening. And of course, right mindfulness is an element of the Eightfold Path, Samasati, 
the path leading to awakening. To understand why mindfulness is so central, it is helpful to understand that according to the Buddha, the very root of all our suffering lies in a fundamental distortion of our perception and cognition. It is not our personal fault, but very often we just take our personal experience to be the reality. And we do not realize the extent to which this so-called reality is truly just a construction or a fabrication of our mind. We are in unconsciously inhabiting our personal mental bubble and then mistake it for the reality. That's just how things are. Yes, this other person, he's just a stupid guy. Yeah. And the distortions of the mind, the so-called vipalasas, include the distortions that the Buddha spoke about. For instance, seeing things as stable and permanent rather than as transitory and impermanent. Experiencing what is basically unsatisfactory as pleasant. Experiencing and believing in a separate and solid self and experiencing what is impure as pure. And it is due to those misperceptions and biases that are so ingrained in our system that we constantly reach out and grasp after things that seem attractive and we run away or we push away those objects that seem unpleasant or you know, when something is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, we simply ignore them. So we're attached to sense pleasures, for instance, and we expect them to bring us a gratification that we are longing for so much. And then we end up being disappointed and frustrated when we realize that the pleasure is not as fulfilling and satisfying as we expected it to be, or it's, it's not sustainable, it passes. And I find it actually quite poignant to see how we and most people are constantly trying to find happiness through making huge efforts. You know, we are working hard, we are enduring hardship, we are manipulating, strategizing, running around, somehow hoping that getting and holding on to certain objects will finally do it for us. And yet in the end, none of those efforts to find happiness will do it because they are all based in a distorted view in those vipalasas. So they can't, they can't deliver what they promise. And we are actually recreating this delusion moment by moment due to our tendency to grasp, to fixate, and then to proliferate on what we are experiencing. So it is sheer habit that we are constantly creating all these mind worlds, all these inner movies, and all the dramas also of success and failure happiness and frustrations and all these dramas, if you look at them carefully, they are all about me. 
isn't it? It's always about me in the central role. So in order to be truly happy and to wake up from this deluded state, from this trance, we need to train our mind. We need to cultivate wholesome qualities like kindness, generosity, patience, energy, and we need to develop the wisdom that is able to see through this mind's tendency to fabricate endless thought worlds and then to get lost in them. And it is in this process that mindfulness plays such a central role. Mindfulness is the faculty that we need to lead our mind in a more wholesome direction. It is really a key quality because it addresses this problem of confusion and distorted perception. So let us consider in more detail where and how mindfulness plays a role. And to illustrate why mindfulness is so relevant, I would like to address different functions of mindfulness as we find them described in the Pali Canon. So the first important function of mindfulness, or in Pali, sati, is anchoring the mind. Mindfulness, or sati, ties our attention to an object and in this way anchors the mind. It is the capacity of also holding an object in the mind, of establishing it, so that we can recognize it and investigate it. In this way, sati counteracts the mind's tendency to, you know, always go off in all directions, to get lost in hopes and worries. It counteracts the fragmentation and the dispersion of the mind. And this is why it is also needed in order to develop concentration, for instance. Although we can clearly distinguish between the mental factors of sati, mindfulness on the one side and concentration, samadhi on the other hand, both mental factors need to work together in our practice and they support each other. There is a nice simile in the Chapana Sutta where mindfulness of the body is compared to a post or a pillar which is firmly anchored in the ground. Six different animals, a snake, a crocodile, a bird, a dog, a hyena and a monkey, symbolizing the six senses, so this includes the thinking mind, um, are all bound to this post and all are trying to free themselves and they are all pulling in different directions. So. This is like our senses that like to run after interesting sense impressions, isn't it? Our eyes want to look at beautiful sights. Our ears want to listen to pleasant sounds. Our tongue wants to taste delicious flavors and so on. But when the post is firm, after a while the animals will calm down and they will stop pulling in all directions. So the senses calm down, the mind calms down. And it says in the Chapana Sutta, 
In the same way, when a practitioner whose mindfulness immersed in the body is developed and pursued, the eye does not pull toward pleasing forms, and unpleasing forms are not repellent. The ear does not pull toward pleasing sounds, etc. The nose does not pull towards pleasing aromas. The tongue does not pull towards pleasing flavors. The body does not pull towards pleasing tactile sensations. The intellect does not pull toward pleasing ideas and unpleasing ideas are not repellent. This practitioners is restraint. So we see that the Buddha stressed the importance of body mindfulness because it helps our mind not to be constantly distracted by all the sensory impressions that impinge upon us. You know, this phenomenon that is referred to in research as a stimulus-driven attention, do you know that? A mind constantly running after all those stimuli, sounds, sights, touches, being totally driven and controlled by external stimuli. And this really leads to a state of complete exhaustion. And on the contrary, as Bhikkhu Analayo writes, when the mind is anchored in the body, we are literally centered and thus able to move through the imponderables of daily life without losing our inner balance. So we can see that mindfulness keeps the attention with a chosen object, the body or any other object, and it notices as soon as the mind has gone off. And in this way, gradually, the mind will become more steady, more firm, or as it says in a commentarial text, it doesn't wobble so much. It develops a staying power. Now, complementary to this function of anchoring the mind and happening at the same time, I have to say, Sati also gives us a wide awareness of the present moment. So that's a second central function of mindfulness, to be aware of the present experience in a comprehensive way with a wide open mind. The Buddha explicitly said that when there is no sati, the mind is contracted, it's narrow. We know this, don't we? This tunnel vision that we experience when we feel stressed and under pressure. And on the other hand, mindfulness refers to this state where the mind is open, wide, aware. We could say it's a bit like when listening to sounds. The mind needs to be relaxed so we can actually take the experience in. We can receive it. So to be mindful is not this kind of tense, uh, fixed, focused attention on just a small object in the field of our experience, which we usually have when we are trying too hard but it is a more spacious and sensitive, receptive mind state. 
This is illustrated nicely in a simile where the Buddha spoke about a cow herd who has to make sure that his cows, you know, are okay. Uh, and now his job is to prevent the cows from eating the wheat fields that are surrounding his pasture. But once the wheat has been harvested, the cow herd can quietly settle under a tree and just keep an eye on his cows from there. So Sati is compared here to this relaxed alertness of a cow herd that is watching the cows, but very relaxed with a mind that is wide and open and alert. This is from the Dveda Vitaka Sutta where the Buddha speaks about his own experience before awakening. Just as in the last months of the hot season, when all the crops have been brought inside the villages, a cowherd would guard his cows while staying at the root of a tree or out in the open, since he needs only to be mindful that the cows are there. So too, there was no need for me only there was need for me only to be mindful that those states were there. Tireless energy was aroused in me and unremitting mindfulness was established. My body was tranquil and untroubled, my mind concentrated and unified. Maybe you get a sense of this steady, relaxed mindfulness that leads to the unification of the mind. And similar somehow is the image in which the practice of mindfulness is compared to climbing on top of a tower. This is from Bhikkhu Analayo. This tower parable vividly emphasizes the ability to oversee an overall situation and thereby be aware of its various aspects. In order to be able to see the whole situation, it is necessary to climb a tower and thereby establish a distance between the observer and the person being observed. The same applies to the development of sati. Here it is inner distance through detachment that makes it possible to get an overview of what is happening. This distance is not that of a head person who has lost touch with the event but an effective distance that is not emotionally overwhelmed by a situation. And I just want to really emphasize this because I know the word detached has some problematic connotations in English. Um, so really, this is not about spacing away, but it, it's, it's also not about dissociating from our experience, but it's about not getting so entangled with our experience. Yeah? Does, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So what becomes clear from these similes is that mindfulness, thanks to this wide-angle perspective and spaciousness, enables us to see a situation more holistically, more comprehensively, with all the various aspects and facets. We grasp a situation more fully, not just one small aspect of it. And this allows us to understand it better and deeper. 
we can more easily recognize the causes and consequences of a situation. We understand other people better and their perspective. And we also have a longer, uh, a long-term time horizon, not just a short-term perspective on things. And naturally, when we come under pressure, when things are getting tough, it's usually really difficult to keep this spacious awareness. You, you have maybe experienced this, and it's really a matter of practice to learn to have this wide awareness even in challenging situations. The third function of sati is protecting the mind from unskillful states and actions. So this is another really important function of sati, its capacity to protect the mind. Sati protects us from getting lost in unwholesome mind states and maybe even, even being pulled into unethical behavior a function that is actually linked to the previous one of anchoring the mind. Um, so our compulsive tendency that I've already mentioned, you know, to think and speculate about everything we see and hear, this very um, creative function, but also complexifying function of our mind, create so many layers that we put on top of our experience, so many interpretations, so many speculations that very often prevent us from, from being in touch with life, from being in touch with our immediate experience and out of this so much reactivity comes. So the Buddha compared sati, mindfulness, to a guardian that is standing at the entrance of a town whose job is to make sure that no dangerous people will enter the town. So sati should be right there, you know, at the sense doors, at the eye doors, at the ear doors, at the nose door, at the mouth door, at the skin door, so that we recognizing whatever is arising there in any moment. And if we see, oh, this has a potential to amplify and maybe to capture the mind, that we are really, really alert and don't allow this to happen. So this is called guarding the sense doors or restraining the senses. And this is actually a more active form of mindfulness you know, which we also need at times to prevent the mind from developing unskillful habits. It's just like saying, no, I'm not going down this road. I've gone there already a million times and I know, I know that it doesn't lead anywhere. I have understood that these thoughts are not helpful and I will not engage in them. As Joseph Goldstein writes, with recurring unskillful thoughts, we need an actively engaged mindfulness because, as the Buddha pointed out, whatever we frequently think of and ponder, that will become the inclination of our minds. We heard earlier about the cowherd who can just watch his cows in a relaxed way, leaning against the tree, yes? 
Now, in the same discourse, the Buddha also described the situation before the fields around the pasture had been harvested to keep the cows in check, you know, similar to the situation when we find ourselves sitting on the cushion and we notice there is a potential distraction or a potentially destructive, unwholesome impulse, yes, coming. So the Buddha says, just as in the last months of the rainy season in the autumn, when the crops thicken, a cowherd would guard his cows by constantly tapping and poking them on his side, on this side, and with a stick to check and curb them. Why is that? Because he sees that he could be flogged, imprisoned, fined, or blamed if he let them stray into the crops. So, when the distractions are many, when there is a potential of getting lost, we really need to be much more alert. We need to be more active to prevent the mind from getting lost in those endless fantasies and daydreams. So we really need to renew this intention again and again to really stay present, to keep the mind here and if necessary to get it back to the present moment. And there is even a more powerful simile that shows us the protective power of mindfulness in a somewhat drastic image. It describes a man uh, carrying a bowl brimming with oil on his head through a crowd watching a girl doing some singing and dancing performance. And he is followed by another man with a drawn sword ready to cut off his head if he spills even just one drop of oil. So to preserve his life, the man carrying the oil has to apply his full attention to each step and movement. So he cannot afford being distracted. The Buddha in the discourse goes on to ask, what do you think, practitioners, would that man stop attending to the oil and out of negligence turn his attention outwards? Of course not, clearly, because this man has to be aware of every of his movements in order to avoid losing his head. As John Peacock writes, losing one's head works as a very good metaphor for exactly what happens when there is no sati guarding the sense doors. Well, even so, at times our mindfulness may not be strong enough to prevent unskillful mind states. But then we can still resort to deliberately turning our attention away from certain objects that we know are only going to upset us or arouse a lot of wanting in the mind. This is a rather basic practice, simply withdrawing our attention if we know that an object uh, that an object brings a lot of wanting. So if I know that uh, the thought of a certain person will bring up a lot of uh, desire or aversion and anger, and 
I'm not able just to be mindful with this state. If I'm just getting lost in it again and again, then it's maybe skillful at times just to redirect my attention to a neutral object like feeling my body or my breath. So we always have this possibility of choosing where to bring our attention and it is really through mindfulness that we can change the channel in our minds. Knowing and training in this practice of protective mindfulness, whether it is through anchoring the mind more, whether it is through guarding the sense doors, whether it is through shifting the focus of our attention, doesn't matter, is really huge because we recognize that we actually have a choice in any moment. There is so much more freedom once we learn to relate to all these objects in a more skillful way. A fourth function of sati is balancing the mind. So that's a function that has to do with the mental development uh, of the mind in which sati plays this very crucial function or role of being a meta with one T, meta function towards the other mental factors. So for instance, among the five so-called spiritual faculties that I mentioned already, um, mindfulness has a special role because it constantly watches and balances the other factors. So we have these factors, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration and wisdom. And sati is like the, the quality that always has an eye on all of them and knows, oh, there is some faith lacking or energy is uh, not balanced with concentration. Okay, so I need to maybe adjust my practice so that the mind comes into a more stable and balanced state. So in a discourse, sati is compared to a charioteer. And this charioteer always has to keep an eye on the mind state. And it needs to recognize when is there a need for adjustment? When do I have a lack of energy? And maybe it's good to bring in more energy, you know, maybe in walking meditation to walk more quickly or opening the eyes or when the mind is too restless to really um, emphasize more the calming aspect of our practice. So that's sati also, mindfulness. Um, so we could say that sati here exerts a meta function. It's like a little bit a supervisor of the other mental factors. It is the self-reflexive ability to watch ourselves and our own mental process and then to adjust it intentionally when needed. It is this ability to, to know, to be aware of what is going on and for instance, you know, to recognize the hindrances that I spoke <coughs> this afternoon, to recognize, oh, there is sloth and torpor in the mind or also to recognize when the awakening factors are around. Oh, there is a lot of interest. Oh, there is joy. 
it's mindfulness that recognizes what is happening on the mental level. And so this really highlights that it's so important not to limit our mindfulness just to body mindfulness, but that we want ultimately to have a comprehensive awareness of all body and mind processes. We begin with the body, but later it's really about including the totality of our experience. And the last function that I'd like to mention is the clear perception leading to wisdom. So we could say that mindfulness is this capacity to perceive in a very clear and less distorted and penetrative way. It, it is a little bit different from our normal habitual way of perceiving the world. It is a way of looking which allows wisdom to arise more easily. Because normally, as I've mentioned, we have a tendency to perceive in a way that is distorted, that is flawed, and very often that is totally superficial. So in one simile, the Buddha compared mindfulness with the probe of a doctor. Suppose Sunakata, a man were wounded by an arrow thickly smeared with poison. A surgeon would cut around the opening of the wound with a knife. Then he would probe for the arrow with a probe. Then he would pull out the arrow and would expel the poisonous humor without leaving a trace of it behind. So sati, the probe, has the function of gaining clear information through careful examination, like a doctor examining a wound. And in this simile, the Buddha is speaking about recognizing unwholesome mind states. So we need to look carefully and really detect, oh yes, there is some aversion going on. And this is the prerequisite to find out whether maybe we need to take a further step. In other similes, mindfulness as a function of looking deeper into the nature of things so that liberating wisdom can arise. For instance, the Buddha also compared mindfulness to the goad and plowshare of a farmer. Do you know what it is? It's this very traditional instrument that the farmers used to use before they had, uh, you know, the um, the tractors, you have a horse and then behind you have this wooden thing, the goad and the ploach. So you have to stand on it with one foot and with the hands you have to direct it so you can um, work on your field and prepare it to sow your seeds. Do you have an idea? Yeah. So Anala, you're right about this simile. The simile might have suggested itself since with the help of the goat, the farmer ensures the continuity of the plowing, keeping the ox on track while the plowshare penetrates the surface of the earth, turns up its hidden parts, and thereby prepares it for the seeds to be grown and planted. Similarly, continu continuity of sati keeps the mind on track with regard to the meditation object, 
so that sati can penetrate the surface appearance of phenomena, turn up their hidden aspects, in brackets, the three characteristics, and enable the seeds of wisdom to grow. The fact that Plo, Share and Goad are mentioned together in the above simile points moreover to the need to combine clarity of direction with balanced effort in developing Sati, since the farmer has to execute two tasks at the same time. With the goad in one hand, he has to ensure the straightness of the furrow by keeping the oxen moving in a straight line, while with the other hand, he has to exert just the right amount of pressure on the plowshare so that it neither gets stuck because he has pushed it too deeply into the ground or only scratches over the surface for lack of pressure. So we get a sense of this balanced and continuous mindfulness that allows wisdom to grow. Or another comparison for myself that that helps me to understand it is like looking at a painting. If we look at a painting in a museum just passing by, we will probably only notice some, some very obvious features and probably things that we have already forgotten the next moment when we move on to the next painting. But if we take the time to really look at the painting, to just take it in, to let our attention dwell on it, then gradually deeper aspects of a painting will uh, open up to our understanding. We, we start to notice things that we didn't notice at first. We get, we get a sense of a certain meaning, perhaps. Have you had this experience? When you really stay with some piece of, any piece of art, basically, if you just stay with it, your understanding just deepens. And it's not from intellectual analysis, it's just from being with it. So, in a similar way, our intention in meditation is to practice this pure, unentangled quality of mindfulness in a very patient and continuous way, so that we become able to recognize how transient and unstable all experiences are, to really see the suffering, to see the causes of suffering, to see the end of suffering. This is a wisdom that comes naturally through mindful awareness, not as an intellectual knowledge, but as something that we know more and more intuitively in our bones. And this leads to a fundamental transformation of our being. So let's summarize again the five functions of sati that we've looked at. Mindfulness anchors the mind like a pillar. It gives us a wide, comprehensive view of a situation, as if standing on a tower. Sati protects the mind from unskillful mind states and actions, and it keeps it centered, even when walking through a crowd of cheering people. It balances the mind like a charioteer, steering his horses in a harmonious way. And it allows us to perceive clearly and in a less distorted way and thus 
leads to wisdom. And of course, these functions, you know, they are interwoven. We cannot really separate them. They support each other and they support the mind to grow, to mature in insight and wisdom. And so another aspect that I would like to turn to now is that as we practice mindfulness over a certain period, we might start to notice that mindfulness itself also develops. We can notice changes in our experience of mindfulness. And this means we want to be mindful of mindfulness itself. We want to notice how mindfulness feels, how we experience it in our mind. In the early stages of mindfulness practice, our main effort often is to just keep the attention with some object, with the breath, for instance, with some focus and just to come back again and again and again whenever the mind has gone off. And at this stage, the, the mindfulness feels very dualistic. It's very object-centered. It's like I am sitting here and I'm aware of the object over there. Uh, it doesn't feel very spacious, it's not very steady, we're getting lost, we're distracted a lot of the time. But then, if we keep practicing over time, we start to notice that the temporal continuity of mindfulness increases, that it just becomes easier to stay with the experience, it just becomes more steady not through forcing, it's really a matter of cultivation, there is less distraction. Another development is that the, mind, the, the field of the awareness starts to expand. I don't know whether you have experienced that. It, it starts to become more spacious. It's not just, oh, I have to feel my breath here. It's, it's more and more feeling a bit more spacious, wide. Oh yes, I have a sense of the totality of my experience then both the intra and extraspection increase. So we perceive more inwardly and outwardly. We, our awareness becomes more inclusive. So we are not just noticing our internal sensations, but we also notice what is happening around us. And this has social implications because our mindfulness is wide enough that we also notice other beings and um, we start to care more about other beings. Also, mindfulness becomes more uh, refined. We, we have a higher sensitivity to perceive more subtle, more nuanced uh, sensations. It becomes more embodied. It, it is more and more something that we manifest in how we live our lives, how we move our bodies, just how our whole being starts to be more a manifestation of mindfulness. And, you know, this separation of subject and object that I mentioned at the beginning is a little bit more relative. It starts to soften a little bit. Um, it, it becomes somehow more holistic, our experience. And what I've already mentioned, as mindfulness grows, as it becomes stronger, 
it also allows penetrative wisdom to arise and we can really experience this power to release the mind from afflictive mind states, even if just on a temporary base. As our capacity grows to simply know what is going on right now without grasping at it, without making a story out of it, just allowing it to be there, there can be moments where the mind is able to simply let go. For instance, one, once in a retreat, well, it was not just once that it happened, but once in a retreat, I, I was experiencing craving, yes, strong attachment again and again. And it was really quite unpleasant. I was really suffering. And so I just kept noting, okay, there is craving, okay, craving, craving. But that just didn't help. Uh, there was also some self-judgment around it. This is not wholesome. Now stop it. This is enough. And yet the craving just kept popping up over the days. And then one day after lunch, I was resting on my bed and I again noticed the craving arising. So, oh my God, now knowing it, I was feeling it. And then suddenly something shifted and the mind just said, oh, it's just craving. <laughs> there was just a clear recognition and understanding, not an intellectual understanding, but on a deeper level, that this was just another object in awareness. Nothing to be concerned about, it was just craving. And there was such a relief. The, the, the mind was very cool in this moment, um, just noticing it and this allowed the wisdom to arise. There was just the awareness of craving. There was no grasping at it, no identifying with it, no making a problem of it, just seeing it clearly in the field of awareness. And then the whole thing stopped because there was no feeding of the craving. There was no resistance to it. There was no fighting against it. There was no jumping into it just this clear seeing of what was going on. And this allowed the mind to relax. So when mindfulness is really there, when it's strong, then anything might arise in our mind and it can simply be known. It really doesn't matter what the object is. It could be a wholesome mind state, it could be an unwholesome mind state, it could be a pleasant mind state, it could be an unpleasant mind state, painful, beautiful, it doesn't matter. Everything can simply be known in the field of mindful awareness. And we can trust, you know, that all unwholesome mind states are impermanent as well if we don't feed them, if we don't get hooked them. They will, um, you know, uh, become weaker. So we really can develop a trust that we don't need to fight against those whole unwholesome mind states, that it's enough not to feed them further. We don't need to manipulate them. But transformation and liberation come when we are willing to really, really look and be aware of what is happening in a very honest way. 
So it is through practice, like here sitting for hours, walking for hours, that we develop this ability to stay present in a non-reactive way and to perceive differently from our normal way of looking. Mindfulness really helps us to de-automize our normal way of perceiving and it really allows us to look with fresh eyes, with a fresh mind. And from this, deeper understandings can open up to us. So it's really good again and again to ask this question, what is being experienced right now? What is the mind aware of right now? This is a quote by Bhikkhu Bodhi. In the practice of right mindfulness, the mind is trained to remain in the present, open, quiet and alert, contemplating the present event. All judgments and interpretations have to be suspended or, if they occur, just registered and dropped. The task is simply to note whatever comes up, just as it is occurring, riding the changes of events in the way a surfer rides the waves on the sea. The whole process is a way of coming back into the present, of standing in the here and now without slipping away, without getting swept away by the tides of distracting thoughts. To practice mindfulness is thus a matter not so much of doing, but of undoing. We can learn to trust the power of mindfulness. We can learn to take it as a true refuge, this capacity to hold whatever is arising in this spacious field of mindful awareness because it's really not about the objects. It is about the awareness of the object and the understanding that comes from this awareness. And learning to really meet experiences as we relax into this field of awareness also allows us to meet difficult experiences with more balance, with more perspective with more wisdom and care. And there is another aspect I just wanted to mention briefly that you might explore in your own practice. There is also a joy that we start to notice if we practice being present. There is a joy that comes from simply being present. Do you know that? Have you met it? Yes. Just a subtle joy of fully being here of being alive, of being awake. No matter what the content of this moment actually is, there is something about being present that our mind actually likes. Not being present is not a happy mind state. And being present contains this seed of joy. And that is something that we can discover and you know, give it a bit more nourishment. So. Ropobia writes, if we take it as a practice to move through a day or a period of a day, trying with mindfulness to stay more at contact 
we find that it is actually a delightful way of being, lighter, more easeful, less burdened by the complexities of papancha. This is this proliferating mind. We also enjoy the vivid brightness of the present moment, the beauty of nowness and the relative spaciousness of less self-building. So, we've seen, I hope, how mindfulness can evolve and open up a more wakeful, more spacious way of being, of perceiving and of understanding the nature of all experience. Really, it is a forerunner of liberating wisdom. It is an essential component on this path. And in the spacious field of mindful awareness, all things reveal themselves to us in their ungraspable, fleeting nature and helping us more and more to loosen our grip, to let go. I would like to close with a quote by Ajahn Chah. Try to be mindful and let things take their course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a still forest pool. All kinds of wonderful animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So let's just sit for a moment in silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.